0: So this morning um, got off to a rough start for me, just to be completely honest with you. I am wearing flip-flops today because I couldn't find my shoes. I um, only shave once a week on Sunday mornings, it's the only time I shave, that's how very little facial hair I actually grow. And I couldn't shave today because I couldn't find my razor. All this, I I happened to, we moved yesterday, and I'm like, oh, that makes sense now. So we moved yesterday and I thought we were good to go. Everything was set up. Everything was planned and um, it wasn't ready. It was a disaster. (laughs) So we weren't able to stay at my house. I didn't have my shoes, didn't have my razor, didn't have socks. It was a struggle, but we're here together and we're praising the Lord. Amen. Amen. We're in Psalm 2. We're in a series in the book of Psalms. And guys, can I tell you, I'm loving the book of Psalms as we're diving more and more into it. It's so often we kind of, when we read the book, when we read a psalm, it's so often been one of those books that you read to just kind of feel something. Oh, help me, oh God, or the Lord is my refuge, and we think, this is great, and it's kind of like a devotional feel. I read the psalm this morning, and I'm good to go. But it's so incredible, as we dive deeper into this, we see so much depth in the book of psalms, so much power and meaning and how it's theologically rooted and connected into each other and weaving this incredible story. The Book of Psalms, I just absolutely love. And this one in particular is so incredible, so awesome. It's, it's known as a royal psalm, uh, kind of one of those things when the king was crowned, a coronation psalm, if you will. And so for us, maybe an idea of a coronation might kind of, it's kind of a foreign concept. We don't have a king here in America, right? There's not many kings actually left in the world, are there? But so in my mind, I'm trying to think of what's the illustration I can use to tell the people about what a coronation psalm would be? Don't make fun of me, but this is what I came up with. This shows where my life is lately. The movie Frozen. (laughs) Did you think, did you anticipate that? (laughs) That was like, when I thought of coordination, the first thing I thought of was Frozen. It's sad, I know. Elsa and Anna were the ones that first came to my mind. And because the idea of Elsa was this special celebration where she was now coordinated as a queen. Anybody know of where? What was the name of it? Arendelle, Arendelle? Right? Is that right? Good job, guys. All of you guys who pretended who knew the answer didn't answer, you guys are also smart and well. There's this incredible ceremony where she has to stand up and she's holding two things, a scepter and a, look like a, is it an orb kind of looking thing? Right? And these were symbols of her power. This is coordinating her and saying, you are now our ruler. You are now our king. And this is what this psalm, its purpose was. It was this psalm that was saying, and that was lifted up and it said, this is the, the time, of, our king is being crowned and throned this is a, a time where we celebrate the idea of this is who our king is. During the Babylonian exile, this psalm gave the Israelites hope when they remembered the promises made to the Davidic kings at their coronation. It also gave them hope about the, God's anointed, specifically the capital A anointed, the Messiah, that will one day rule the nation as a theocracy again. So together, guys, Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, is a second, Psalm 2 is the second part of the two-part introduction to the whole book of Psalms. And they're concerned with the necessary conditions for happiness. So you guys remember last week we talked about first Psalm 1 was the blessed man. The blessed man meditated in the word. The blessed man did this, he's rooted. The blessed one is rooted in in this beautiful tree producing life. So it's kind of this introduction of how are you happy? How are you blessed? By being righteous, by, by obeying, meditating on the law, delighting in the law. But ultimately we discovered that, well, we couldn't do that. So how are you truly blessed? Well, you're truly blessed by finding the truly blessed one. In other words, you're blessed by knowing Jesus. Now we see here in Psalm 2, there's a there's a, a significant shift of emphasis, kind of like a changing of the scene, almost a, a kind of a changing of the genre of the two. Psalm one addressed to kind of the happiness of the individual. Psalm 2 deals with the question of the happiness of the community of believers, faced with the kind of the problems of a history made of nations kind of contending for power. To this situation, there's a word of comfort in Psalm 2, that the Lord reigns and he will subject the nations to the God's anointing king called his son. Psalm 2 has a very artistic structure. It unfolds dramatically into four parts or stanzas. Each of them is kind of equivalent in length. So, here are the four parts really quickly for you. Number one, the raging and plotting of the nations. Number two, God laughing. Number three, the anointed reigns. And number four, God calls. So, the first part, the, the raging and plotting of the nations. The psalmist who, apostles, if you look at the way they identify him in Acts chapter 4, identifies this psalmist as King David himself, begins with a question. And it poses like this, a poetic device known as synonymous parallelism in verses 1 and 2. has this simple point. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. So last week I shared the term that was used positively for meditating day and night on God's word. It's here translated in Psalm 2 as plotting. It conveys this idea of kind of murmuring to oneself, this kind of, in this instance, a bad sense, a bad muttering, but in the positive way, it's like this kind of telling yourself, repeating it to yourself, thinking about it. So last week we talked about meditating on God's word as kind of a way of thinking about, processing, speaking it, putting it to song, asking other people about it, talking to other people. Well, in a negative connotation, this plotting is this kind of muttering. this kind of repeating this idea, how do I plot in vain? They mutter an outrage that God would dare call for submission, obedient submission. One scholar points out that the language expresses the sense of fixed determination, expressing repeated actions, customary behavior. In other words, here's no, a mere passing thought, a momentary slip-up, an unintended tweet. Rather, the nations, all its peoples, the rulers, the kings, the presidents, prime ministers, are in opposition to the God revealed in Jesus Christ. The hatred of the world focuses, as we see verse 2, against the Lord and his anointed. Later meaning Messiah, or the New Testament Greek terms, Christ. Why? The question is, why are the nations plotting in vain? Why are they muttering to themselves? Why are they saying, oh, I'm, 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 let's take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed one? I think the why is found in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. What does that mean? And as I was studying this, there's a lot of Hebrew scholars i read who are way smarter than I am and I will ever be. And they like to translate the word here that we talk about bonds to the word yoke. A yoke is something you put on oxen or a harness is something you put on like your horse. So anybody know what a yoke is? What, what's it do? What's it do? Anybody? Steers your cows, right? Or your cattle or oxen or I'm not much of a farmer. So I just all animals, just all in that genre. <laughs> What it is, it's this kind of a symbol of ownership. Like if you own the oxen, you tell it where to go. You steer it, it has a purpose, it does something, right? The idea here is someone who owns them. There is someone who demands that they be yoked. There is someone who demands that because they are owned that they have been created, therefore the creator has rights over them. And that's what they want nothing to do with. They wanna be, I'm on my own, it's just me. Now isn't this the impulse of every human heart in many ways, right? What well, about to read, I want to share with you, this is what Tim Keller says, and he's quoting a guy named George McDonald, and George McDonald says this, the one principle of hell is, I am my own. And this is Tim Keller, I think what he means is that's the one conviction everybody in hell shares, but also it's the one conviction that creates hell. It's the one conviction that will create a hell in your relationships, a hell in your marriage, a hell in the neighborhood, a hell in the community, a hell in your life. If you operate on this principle, I am my own. Take my yoke off. I belong to no one but myself. I am the captain of my own soul. I am the master of my own fate. Don't you see this essence in like most human hearts? This this idea, I mean, especially if you have kids, it dominates the thought and worldview of human beings. This, I am my own. I want no yoke. Don't tell me what to do. This is just the way I am and this is the way I will be. I am my own. The Bible therefore says we hate the idea of a king. We hate the idea of someone who has rights over us. We hate the idea of a king who has a yoke on us who says you belong to me. You're not your own. You must do as I say. That's the reason why the Bible says human beings don't just disbelieve in God. We hate God. Human beings hate him. Now I know some of you might raise objections. You're like, well, I mean, Most people don't hate God, Lawrence. Like, we live in America. Like, what, 90% of people say they believe in God in America? On a given Sunday, there are a ton of people in churches who say they believe in God, and they're okay with the concept of God. They don't really hate God. But that's not the God I'm talking about. The Bible doesn't say people are hostile toward the concept of God, or toward the idea of God. The Bible says people hate the biblical God. It's the biblical God who thunders from Mount Sinai, saying, be holy, for I am holy. Have no other gods beside me. It's the biblical God who gives us the Messiah, and the Messiah shows up. And what does the Messiah say? He says, you cannot be my disciple unless you hate your mother and father. Do you know what that means? He says, literally, you must love me so much that your feelings you have toward anyone else will look almost like hatred by comparison. That's how much you need to love him. He's saying, this Messiah is saying, I have to be supreme in your life. I have to be your number one in your life. I have to have total control of every dimension of your being. That's the God of the Bible who puts a yoke on you and says, I own you, I'm your creator, you belong to me. That's the kind of God the Bible says people hate. Isn't that true? Isn't there something about us humanly that rages against the idea that, wait, 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 you want me to swear allegiance or be owned or or give up all rights and not be my own? There's something inside of us, humanly speaking, that has this desire to say, no, 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 I rule, I'm in control, I am God. And the Bible is so clear, it says, those people hate God. They wanna throw off the yoke, they're plotting and they're scheming, and guys, please don't don't think this is rulers of the world, this is us. We're the rulers of the world who are plotting, scheming, and think, how do I just make my life my own? I mean, isn't that what control is in your own life? Right? When, we, when, we have a, when we make an idol of control, having to control every little thing, basically you're trying to say, no, no, I need to control it because I need to be God. Because if I'm not in control, then I don't, life is too scary for me. When I'm not in control, then this false lie of me being God gets taken away. And that's why life, when it's out of your control, when life gets crazy, unpredictable, you can't handle it because your lie that you made up of you being in control, you being God, gets shattered. I am my own. I am God. What does God do when you do this? What does God do when people scheme? What does God do when this is happening? He laughs. He sits in the heaven laughs. The Lord holds him in derision. There could not be a more unexpected response, right, to the collective scheming of the world. Uh, you could think maybe God would be like, oh, they're scheming against me? Let me show them what's up, you know? <laughs> Let me be like, oh, I'll send, you're going to scheme against me? Let me send my spies against them. You know, that's what I would do. Be like, oh, you're scheming against me? Well, I've got some spies and some ninjas, and I'll send them out there. But he laughs. A few years back, and this is, I don't know why I'm going to share this, but I'm going to. I decided I wanted to change my laugh. It didn't feel manly enough, my laugh, you know, so I laughed, so I decided I'm going to like go with this kind of Viking Santa kind of laugh, you know, it was like, <laughs> that's what I was going to go for, and I, I thought to myself, if I just kept on practicing that every single time I laughed, that's how it would be, you know, so I did for a year and a half of my life, I kid you not, every time I laughed, I tried to laugh like that, to start just becoming like, that's the way I laugh, I kind of forgot about it, I wish I went back to that now, I might do that, that's how I picture, I hear God laughing, by the way. I hear this guy going, <laughs> It's like if the sun had a voice and would laugh at us if we tried to grab it and throw it to the moon. It's this idea of, like, there's no worrying or fretting taking place in heaven. Just laughter of the puny efforts of us humans thinking that we can throw off the purposes of God. It's like, uh, it's like a, a little ant, uh, uh, and he's like, ant's trying to move this stick, and you just pick up the stick up, and he's trying to move this piece of food, and you just move it away, and the ant's like, Oh my gosh. And you go back and you just kind of laugh at this idea. Of you're so much, God is so much bigger that our puny effort thinking that we're God that he can just literally sit back and go, <laughs> I mean, that's what I hear. It's laughable, but it's what we do. We put forth so much effort into portraying and thinking and building up this lie that we are in control and we are God. And it's laughable. And then he says, after he laughs, he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. This scholar says, David tells us when his laughter has run its course, our God takes action that will result in justice and the restoration of his divine rule through his son. Revelation 6, 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? We see our efforts of the world and schemes of the world saying, Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to make myself God. I'm going to be owners of my own fate, my own destiny. I am God. I am in charge. God laughs and says, You are not in charge. But I will let you know that day of judgment is coming and here's what I'm gonna do. I will establish that judgment, here's how I'll do it. As for me, I have set my king on Zion. God's response to the planning and all the scheming, God's response to people disobeying, disobedience, God's response is to say, I am gonna install my king. Instead of legions of angels garbed for war, instead of somebody, you're attacking the very sovereignty of my kingship, you're attacking the very rule of my reign, instead of saying I'm going to crush you in army and in battle, I'm going to send instead my son, born of a virgin, living the life of a common citizen, fulfilling the law, falsely accused, dying in our place at the cross, and then rising from the dead to reign bodily as king. While the Davidic king took the throne on this, that kind of plot of hill called Jerusalem, land known as Zion, God the Father instilled his son, the greater David, an heir to God's promises and sent him to the cross. There, our anointed king conquered sin, broke the chains of darkness, crushed the serpent's head, triumphed over death, ascended as king of kings and lord of lords. And from that throne, conquering every Rebel of, of, and living in unbelief, he's installed as king. So our hope is both present and future. What did God do to the, the, the schemes of man and the plots of man of, under, of overriding his kingdom or trying to say, I'm revolting? He said, I'm installing my king. And my king looks nothing like what you would conceive. My king was born humbly, lived and died sacrificially. But he reigns supremely. Christ reigns. It says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I'll make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. This psalm may have been used as a coronation hymn, kind of commemorating the installation of King David and all the kings in his lineage, but none of them could fulfill the extent of this kingship. God's decree, his unbending, unchanging declaration and resolve, David, Solomon, Jeroboam, Rehoboam, all those guys, they might be called sons, but they discharged kind of God's responsibility of his people, but they were not the true divine sonship. That was called an anointed one. The New Testament writers interpret this verse having its final fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Luke 3.22 says, You are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased at the baptism of Jesus Again, at the transfiguration, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Paul quoted it in his sermon in Pisidian Antioch. And we preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children, in that he raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And Hebrews 15, one uh, five, not 15, one five says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you? Every kingly descendant of David, there was anticipation of this psalm's fulfillment that didn't happen until the resurrection of Jesus. Do you see that every single coronation, every single time a new king became king of Israel, they read this psalm and they said, yes, may this be the king. And it wasn't. But they were looking for it. Looking forward to that day when then Peter and Paul and all the New Testament apostles were able to say, guys, guys, Psalm 2 that we've been anticipating, that we've been reading at every coronation, it has happened. We have that king now. The one that makes light, that laughs at the schemes of this world. The injustices of the world is below him. All the troubles, all the problems, guys, the anointed king is here, and get this, his decree is massive, it's global. He gets the nations as his inheritance. He gets the nations as his reward. He's not a local, regional God. He is the king of all. And his reward, his people, is people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Let me tell you, people, we need this king. And I love it. uh, One of my favorite parts is this rod of iron. You shall break them with a rod of iron. Right before it says... In my mind, I'm p- picturing this image once again of Frozen. Yeah, I know, I know, weird. But she has this what, scepter, right, symbol of the king. This is rod of iron, this symbol of his kingship. But it's also a symbol of power. It's a symbol of, of godly reign, the totality of reign. This shattered p- pottery is this absolute rule of Jesus' kingship. And let me tell you people, we need this king. One of the things that's so incredibly interesting about literature and the human race And all our ancient legends kind of of go similarly. Like a lot of our ancient cultures, legends, literature has a similar ring to it. There's a great king. He ruled with wisdom. Power and justice and compassion came to the land. Everybody in the land benefited. Everyone blossomed. The land blossomed. There was enough food to eat. The arts were blossoming. Um, Everything, civilization boomed. It was incredible. But something happened. The king went away. Everything deteriorated. It went to decay. But one day that king will come back. That's a common theme in literature. If you look at Robin Hood, right? What happened when the king goes away? This great king, the Lionheart, right? He goes away. The sheriffs take over. It's all bad. But Robin's like, no, no, the king's coming back. Right? King Arthur. Have you ever read The Wanted Future King, that book? There's a book called The Wanted and Future King. And I love that because the idea is there's this reign of King Arthur, but he's coming back. I had This glorious time of Camelot, incredible time where the land was prospering, but it's called the Wanted future king because he's coming back. And my favorite of all time, you guys know this, is the Lord of the Rings, right? This epic adventure tale trilogy that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote that's just, it's just so incredible. And actually, in, in this time, it's talking about there's a king coming from the north. And one of the, things, one of the quotes about the king is, the hands of the king are the hands of a healer, and so shall the rightful king be known. And it goes, this idea that there's a king coming, he's going to make right the wrongs that are happening. He's going to make right the, the record of tyranny and tragedy. Guys, the actual record of human kings in the world is pretty terrible, isn't it? This is why pretty much every king monarchy around the world is kind of gone. Because the record of kings around the world, is, look at the kings in the Bible. Do you know how many like, really good kings there were in the Bible? Somebody give me a guess. Right, not very many. Two? Three, if you want to count it. Like, it's terrible. The record is absolutely terrible. But we have this idea, but why do we still want kings? Why do we still build up royalty? Not only that, I mean, like, if you look at it, why are we still obsessed with it? Like, if you look at it, even in America, there's no royal line in America. So what do we do? We take billionaires and athletes and make them media stars. We make them kings, right? They hold court. Like, you make LeBron James a king. He might have called himself that too. But either way. You make athletes kings. You make celebrities kings. We adore them. We follow them. Why? I'm quoting Tim Keller again now. He says, the reason for the Old myths, the reason we adore kings and create them, is because there is a memory trace in the human race. Memory trace in the human race. There's a memory trace in you and me of a great king, an ancient king. One who did rule with such power and wisdom and compassion and justice and glory. So his power and wisdom and compassion and glory were like the sun shining in full strength. We know we were built to submit to that king. We were built to give ourselves to that king. We were built to stand before and adore and serve and know that king. That's what the Bible says. The Bible says there's a king above the kings. There's a king behind the kings. There's a king beneath all those legends. Even the greatest kings are just a dim reflection of the memory trace in us. If you reject the true king... You will find a king because you, because you have to. Even if you reject the idea that there is a true king, intellectually, you can't reject it ontologically. You can't reject it in your being. You can't re- reject it psychologically. You will find someone to adore. You will find saviors. You will find kings you will adore. And the question to you today is we've seen here that there's something inside of us humanly that says we want to be our own, we want to be God, we don't want a king. But there's also something inside of us that says there's a memory trace that existed in us that says, no, but we still want to lift up, we want to adore something, we want to worship something still. And the question then to you is what will you choose to adore? Who is your king? Who is your king? Will you choose today to adore the king who died sacrificially, Gave himself for you so you can have a relationship with God or will you choose to worship celebrity? Or will you choose to place yourself as that king? And that's the question for you today because the fourth of the fourth part is this God who calls us. And he says, now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is the gospel call for the nations and for you to repent. Because God's anointed will surely pour out his wrath on all kings and all nations who rebel against his authority. Guys, I want you to hear this. This is just truth that you will worship a king. You will adore your king. If it's yourself as king, if it's yourself as God, if it's money, if it's celebrity, if it's consumerism, if it's a philosophy, whatever it is, you are made, there's a memory tracing you, you're made to have a king. You're made to worship and you're made to adore. What are you choosing to worship and to adore? Will you be the ones, and this is what Psalm 2 and 1 are saying you, are you going to go the path of the wicked or the path of the righteous? Will you be along the lines of those who are scheming, who are plotting, how do I make myself God, make myself king? Or are you going to say, I want to follow the path of the right king? Because can I tell you something, in that memory trace, I want you to hear this, there's something about the memory trace in you that says the idea of justice and beauty and compassion and peace and righteousness that makes your heart say yes. Doesn't that exist for you? You guys have heard me speak before in one of my sermons about the doggy dog world. Do you guys remember this? For those of you who don't remember, I'll share with you again. My wife had an issue with idioms, and she always thought that the idiom was a, it's a doggy dog world, like a good thing. Like, yay, cute, doggy dog world, puppies everywhere. When I had to break her heart and tell her that it's a dog-eat-dog world, she was floored, she was not happy. Why would you do that? <laughs> and the reality is we look around and we see that this world right now and so much of in it is a dog-eat-dog world. There is injustice. There's genocide. There's racism and hurt and broken relationships. And we look at this world and see there's something in um, the memory trace that we have in us of a, of a better world says this is not good enough, this is not right. And so we have hope then, is there another world? Is there another way? Is there another king? And this psalmist says, yes, there is. There is an anointed king who ruled and conquered by dying, not with the sword. There is another king who ruled and conquered by laying himself down, living a sinless life, but then saying, I'll take the punishment and the weight of sin for everybody, and my kingdom will advance not by warfare, but my kingdom will advance by my my followers loving others so well that they look and act like him. There's another kingdom, and that king is the one we're pointing to, and that king is the one I'm looking at you and saying, will you choose to follow him today? Will you choose to adore him? And this is what this passage here, it says, it says, will you turn away? Will you therefore be wise and serve the Lord? I love how it says here, serve the Lord. First thing he tells, here's your response. Here's how you respond. First, it says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. The Hebrew verb here for serve is sometimes also translated as worship. David's commanding the kings, worship, the, worship God instead of rebelling against him. And how should you worship God? When you worship the Son of God, worship with fear and reverence because he is holy and mighty. And worship with joy as well because he is so, he's at the same time glorious, majestic, wrapped in splendor. I love this. David calls us to worship the Lord in splendor of holiness, tremble before him all the earth, Psalm 96.9. Hebrews 12, 28 says, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. I love the phrase here. It says, rejoice with trembling. How do you rejoice with trembling? What a weird phrase. Like, I, I love it, but it's kind of like, what does that mean? What is rejoice with trembling? You know, one possible interpretation is the way my son gets when he gets like the ultimate, I call it the ultimate trifecta of happiness for him, is when he gets ice cream, his grandmother, and dancing. He just gets so happy. And so when my mother came to visit him, we brought ice cream, and so we're sitting in our living room, and I say, Alexa, play um, Shake It Off. And so Shake It Off happens, he has ice cream in his one hand, and my, grandmother, my mother walks in, he's like oh, oh, oh. He just cannot contain his body starts trembling. That's not what we're talking about here. I just wanted to share that, because that's the trifecta of happiness. Now, the more correct interpretation is this idea of rejoicing with a fear, a holy fear, a feeling of, of reverence. So one of the best ways to understand this is I went to the Grand, have you guys ever been to the Grand Canyon? Anybody? Do you guys know there's no rails? I just seem stupid, but I'm just going to throw it out there. I'm scared of heights. I really am. I, 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 I won't even go on a Ferris wheel. I, I hate heights. I just don't. My wife laughed at me because we went on a ski lift and I was just like, like holding on to her. You know, I was not happy, I hate heights. So imagine me at the Grand Canyon. And I'm at the Grand Canyon, I'm like, there's no rails, there's no barrier, it's just open cliff to like a million feet down. And I'm looking at it, and I'll be honest with you, I was trembling. I was, I was like, this is scary, this is crazy. At the same time, I'm like, man, I get to see such beauty with you. My wife and I were like, oh my gosh, this is unbelievable. Like we talked about it, it was like, it's, like, it's, like, it's like not even real looking. You know, it's so majestic, and we were floored by the majesty of it, the beauty of it, and we, got to, we were floored by the fact that we got to see this together. At the same time, I'm still scared. Another way of looking at it is like this. When I was at UF, um, I used to go play ball at Southwest Rec Center. I, used to, I played ball, like all, that was like my life, probably way more than I should have because I didn't go to school that often, but I played a lot of basketball. And I'm playing basketball, and uh, I had next up, I had downs, and I was the next team to go on, and this guy comes in, he's a UF basketball player named Dennis Haslam. And he goes, can I run with you? And I'm like, yes, you can. He's like a 6'8", he's he's in the NBA. Is he still in the NBA? He might be retired now, but he was an NBA player. And so here I was, and I was like, I'll be honest, I was in awe. This is like a legit UF basketball star. He's like ridiculously awesome. And I'm sitting here being like, like, I was in awe, like this guy's incredible. I was a little bit in awe of him. At the same time, I'm like, yes, I'm rejoicing because he's on my team. You know what I'm saying? I'm like, this guy is so much better than me. He's better at basketball than I could ever hope to be, but I get to rejoice because he's on my team. Right? This idea of rejoicing with trembling is do you know how big and how incredible, how awe-inspiring your God is? Do you? I mean, guys, can I just be honest with you? We should be floored when we think about it. We should be blown away. We should be like unbelievably, utterly amazed and rocked to our core that this incredible God, creator of the universe, created the littlest, tiny, microscopic little thing to the biggest, most incredible thing in the world. Yet he still knows you. And he's near to you. We need to be trembling, but also with joy trembling, because that same guy is on your team. And he's known by you. And you know him and he knows you. The hugely transcendent, the bigger than anything we can ever comprehend is now knowable. It's imminent. Do you get that? We need to rejoice. We need to turn and say, yes, God, in fear, in worship, in awe, and in majesty, trembling with joy, that because the, the bigger than we can ever imagine is now ours. We come to you. Second, we're to kiss the sun lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. What does it mean to kiss the son? To kiss the son means to pay honor to, respect to the anointed one. When we worship Christ in fear and trembling, we kind of thus kiss him. In the Old Testament, to kiss someone's feet is to show submission to that person. First Kings 19.18, God tells Elijah, Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all of these that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. We find an incident in the life of Jesus serves as a warning to us, too. In Luke 7, Jesus was eating in the house of Simon, the Pharisee, and a sinful woman came in and poured oil on Jesus and kissed his feet. He pronounced forgiveness to the woman, but he rebuked the Pharisee for not washing and kissing his feet. To kiss the feet means to show submission. To kiss the feet says, no, 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 I just, I'll, you're it. I'm here and you're, you're all I have. I picture this woman at Jesus' feet with her hair and with the oil, kissing his feet. And a lot of us, as we know, feet are kind of gross. But this idea of just saying, no, no, no. I'm, you're my God and I'm below you. I swear subs- subservience to you. You're my king. You're my rule. That's what she's saying. She's saying, I'm no longer God. I am not my own. God, I'm yours. The call for us is to repent. The call for us is to worship with fear, with trembling, with rejoicing, but also to love in such a way, subservient in such a way they say, Yes, I'm kissing your feet. Jesus, tell me where to go, what to do, and I'll do it. Because my life is not my own, I am yours. The call of the gospel brings us into joyous, rever- reverential, God conscious worship. We need to kiss the feet of the Son. We cannot ignore the message here. I don't know where you're at. I don't know what's going on in your life right now. But can I tell you that struggle of making yourself God? The struggle of scheming and plotting and meditating on anything but God is a common struggle in our human condition. Let me tell you, you're made with a memory trace of a king that is called to be a ruler, and let me tell you guys. Let me just, just to be completely honest with you, I've asked, um, I've read a lot of books and studies on like, kind of like, what's the best kind of form of government, right? And a lot of people just, did a whole bunch of ideas like, oh, democracy, you know, republics, and all that kind of stuff. But one of the things I've read is I thought it was very interesting. Is one of the things I read is that often that a benevolent dictator, right, is often seen as a. Uh, uh, the best form of government. Because a truly benevolent dictator, one, probably never existed, right? But, a, a, but if there was a truly, a truly benevolent, we're talking like, will really truly of themselves. A truly benevolent dictator can actually accomplish what they want to accomplish. Because a lot of our systems of government, even if one came around, a benevolent person, could not accomplish most of what they want to do, right? But a truly benevolent dictator is like one of those forms of government that would truly be most beneficial. Guys, there's something about the idea that we were made for. Guys, we long for a different kingdom, don't we? Everything inside of us, the world we long for, we watch the news and we cry out. We say, God, at least for me, I say, God, I want a doggy dog world for my children to grow up in. We long for this different kingdom. Guys, let me tell you that the doggy dog world does come and the kingdom is here. And the ruler of that kingdom is named Jesus. And you have a choice right now. You have a choice today. Will he be your king? Will he be your king? And for you, that doesn't have to be like this whole elaborate ceremony. It doesn't have to be this whole, you know, uh, do I, where do I kneel here? Do I get knighted with a cross which, or a sword, which would be awesome. I wish that was the case. From now on, if I ever became a Christian, for people become a Christian, I hope that was the way it is. But I'm just saying, it doesn't have to be that way. What it is ultimately is that you choose today who you serve. You choose today to accept King Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You choose to follow him, and you choose to accept him as the one who washes away your sin, who died in your place, who loves you, who knows you, and has called you to purpose. The band's going to be making their way up after I pray here, and during the last set of worship, if that's you in this place at all, in any way, shape, or form, I invite you to go and pray with somebody. Guys, every Sunday, every worship, during our last worship service, uh, last worship set, we always have people who are going to be wearing these yellow lanyards. And they're going to be here ready to just pray with you. Anything. It could be about anything. If you just want to pray with somebody, guys, we believe that prayer is God's appointed means of enacting His will. So we want God's will to move. So guys, I encourage you to take advantage of that time of prayer. But specifically, if you're here today and you just choose and you want to choose to believe in this doggy dog kingdom and you want to choose to follow this King Jesus, I encourage you to find one of these people to pray with them. So let's pray together.